For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. It's a really fascinating period to study. I mean, I think, you know, that certainly the carnivore crowd emphasized the hunter aspect, but the definition of these populations was hunter gatherers <laughs> and <laughs> the gathering, the gathering was a big deal. <laughs> what is up everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica, so... If that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All, right. All right, everybody. This is In Liberty and Health, episode number 156. And I'm excited that we finally got to make this happen. I have Alan Flanagan with me today. Dude, how are you? I'm great, Kyle. Thanks very much for uh, yeah again, facilitating this between our time zones. So it's good to finally chat. Yeah, for sure. So um, I, I just want to give you a brief background of me, and I don't want to make it too, too long, and how I kind of came upon you. Well, I did the carnivore diet for about two and a half years, and then I remember seeing people like Lane Norton kind of poking holes in the logic and listening to people like Paul Saladino, Sean Baker, and people who I think, for the most part, mean well, but then they omit things that may not go for their bias. And then I kept seeing Lane pop up, and then over time, I'm like, wow, fuck this guy, fuck this guy, and then um just over time it didn't seem right so um eventually i figured okay well if i could do carnivore for two weeks and be good but i binge then clearly something's going on here so um, i remember seeing a debate between you and tucker goodrich and because my bias was completely against your viewpoint at the time i was like fuck this guy and then i saw the article that you wrote about saturated fat versus sugar and i came to the same conclusion I'm like man screw this guy like he's, he's he can't be right and then over time um i started to hear more and more evidence to the contrary of what i believe i'm like oh maybe i'm wrong about all this yeah. so um i i know it's a little bit of a long beginning here but i uh, give a brief introduction of yourself and then we can kind of move on from there yeah so i um um in nutrition research um i but i i didn't start out in that way uh, so I originally was a lawyer. Um, I We have a kind of distinction in our legal system in Ireland and the UK. So I practiced as a barrister, which is probably the equivalent of like a trial lawyer in the States. So you're court-based. But I had an interest in nutrition that was fairly long-standing. And purely out of interest, I, I started studying it um, and did a course originally um, that kind of wet my appetite so I went on to do a master's and still working in law, kind of at the time more interested in maybe the policy and regulation side of, you know, how my master's in nutrition might kind of overlap with my work as a lawyer. Um, but then I kind of slowly found myself becoming more interested in, in research and in being in research and 
by the time I finished my MSc research, um, I was pretty hooked. So the opportunity for a full-time PhD came up. I moved out of law, completed my PhD research, um, and now I'm kind of moving on to, to, to further research. And then I have a fairly active engagement with the public science communication sphere. Um, so I have my own website, which is a kind of science-based research review. And then I also work with Danny Lennon at Sigma Nutrition, where we produce Sigma Nutrition radio podcasts, um, which is largely kind of based on interviewing academics and then also, you know, go, giving kind of evidence-based rundowns of uh, particular topics for our listeners. Nice. Yeah. Well, um, so suffice it to say that you're a relatively well-educated individual in this sphere. <laughs> hopefully i think the nice thing the nice thing about science is that it typically breeds kind of epistemic humility and hopefully intellectual honesty um but i think the problem with the social media sphere is we have a distinct lack of neither of them um so yeah it can be uh it can be a stormy sea out there yeah so um i'm sure is no surprise to you um <laughs> the big news this week um before kanye kind of went on info wars and all that kind of yeah. was a uh, liver king not being natural i'm sure this was a, a big surprise to everybody shocking shocking <laughs> uh, yeah you know it's it's interesting like and I, almost everyone that i follow has done a kind of a hot take on it where it's typically followed the same narrative of oh none of us are surprised but also, you know, you're kind of being scammed, like the company was turning over, I think, over 100 million a year. And of course, then you have Paul Saladino, who is his business partner in that very same company coming out saying, oh, I had no idea. Um, to, to me, it's not even the fact that he was on copious amounts of gear that's even the problem. Like, I don't really care. Someone can do what they like. It's more what scares me is the fact that he built that kind of audience two million people who clearly don't have basic sense making capacities mm -hmm. to at least question oh i wonder if this is true and whether this absolute behemoth is like this because he eats some liver and 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 does some cold plunges in the lake mm -hmm. uh and to not even have that basic level of you don't even need scientific literacy just that basic critical thinking sense making capacity that that terrifies me <laughs> um, and that's where i put the i i actually put the blame more on individuals for not being able to discern for themselves that someone like that is more trustworthy than like elaine norton for example mm -hmm. right yeah. and if you can't tell the difference between the two that's not liver king's fault that's that person's fault mm -hmm. in my opinion yeah, no, no I, I completely understand that. Um, I feel like with the rise of the carnivore diet, and like I said, I completely felt guilty to this. Um, it it seemed like it came from really like respectable people that kind of have a good amount of like capital with their listeners. You know what I mean? Like Michaela Peterson and Jordan Peterson seem like overall good people. So when they come out with their anecdotes about the carnivore diet and you hear about all these autoimmune issues getting cured, um, it seems really credible. And then they go on Joe Rogan and not that I necessarily have anything against them doing that. And to Jordan Peterson's credit, he did say, Hey, I don't know anything about nutrition, but this is just my experience. Um, it, it really gives people this sense that, you know, what they've been told about red meat and everything that 
is established mm. about kind of that orthodoxy um it goes against that so they seem credible in that regard so um it kind of seems like the liver king is almost like the natural evolution of this like okay well if you can cure all this stuff and you're getting this sufficient amount of protein from the carnivore diet then if you eat raw liver and testicle and this dude's huge and jack then he must be onto something and like the core tenants they sound good but I think the big problem was like he sold his physique and how jacked he was and how strong he was under the guise of if you just eat raw testicles and, yeah. and follow these tenets, then you can look like me. And in all reality, that's not true at all. Yeah, of course. I, I think one of, you know, I think one of the big things, I mean, even Jordan Peterson now went from that place of, hey, this was just my experience with this. And now he's, you know, making videos speaking with authority about, you know, the dietary guidelines were responsible, which is just a hilariously absurd position to take, but also just really falsifiable by reference to the evidence that we have. I, I think what typically characterizes that wider umbrella of a community, um, and by umbrella, I mean kind of the kind of low carb diets, which started out 2007, eight, nine, people were talking about the paleo diet, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of evolved into this big obsession for a while with more key, strictly ketogenic diets. And then that kind of fell by the wayside a little bit as these more ancestral, quote unquote, uh, ways of not just considering diet, but, you know, these the packaged as this whole lifestyle emerged. But, but if you pay attention to a lot of the voices in those spaces, not just the ones that package their information under the kind of uh, health bias of having some qualification. You know, Paul Saladino is a psychiatrist, I think, originally mm -hmm. uh, in terms of qualification. So they sell it as, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a medical professional of some description, so I kind of know what I'm talking about. But if you actually pay attention to a lot of the rhetoric in that community about wider issues, you realize that contrarianism, is a huge unifying factor across right. the world. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is going to manifest from a dietary perspective as everything we were told was wrong. Uh, it will feed into very kind of anti uh, kind of government or authority type stances. So, if we have dietary guidelines that are issued by the government, of course, they must be corrupt. They must have been under the influence of. Uh, vested financial interests, i.e. the food industry. So, so for example, if we were to forget about the specifics of what's being said and focus more on the characteristics of the type of rhetoric mounted, we would see huge overlap between a lot of these themes and say, for example, some of the rhetoric you hear about vaccines. So you can just substitute food industry for pharma industry. Right. You can substitute government for for, for government, it's just in a different context. You can substitute the idea that with food, government wants us sick, but with the pharma context, they also want us sick so they can give us these drugs. So actually the narratives are the same. Mm -hmm. It's just manifesting in slightly different ways. And I think for me, it's like, it's less about the science. Like, let's forget about trying to kind of argue with some of these people about science because they don't, they don't care about what research says, even though they're right. often talk about research. Mm -hmm. They're not interested really in what it says. They're only interested in a piece of research if it supports a conclusion they've already formed. And they form that conclusion, not because of research, but because of narratives. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's something I kind of see with the whole vaccine debate. And I don't want to dive too deep down this rabbit hole, but um, I <laughs> I made a tweet and I said, I feel like there's the vaccine is somewhere between <laughs> population control and relatively ineffective. Like there's room between these two conclusions. And for some reason, most people can't seem to grasp that. Like, so I, I heard you talk about it a little bit on, um, I think it was the proof with Simon Hill and mm -hmm. my conclusion of the data, and you could feel free to push back on this, you please, because I'm sure you've probably read a little bit more than me. Um, it seems like for younger men in the ages of like, actually probably up to about 30 years old, um, there is a raise in the myocarditis risk that could end in hospitalization. Um, now, once you kind of get over that age, that risk starts to drop off right now. It doesn't seem like there's any real risk for older people taking it, but as when it comes to younger people people, it seems like there is a risk. And for older people, they may get some protection from the vaccine, but it seems like it may not do a lot for younger people. And when you say this amongst people who are kind of like like-minded to me, they say, oh, well, you're sipping for the vaccine and you believe government propaganda. It's like, well, no, you can say that people are being yeah. harmed, but it's not this grand conspiracy to kill everybody. <laughs> like, because if it is, then it's doing a pretty bad job because I don't see corpses everywhere. Like in you kind of see this with this died suddenly film. It's it's ridiculous, but you know, just trying to have a nuanced conversation around this just goes right out the window. Yeah, and 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 this this a lot of these beliefs now. Um, Ezra Klein has this term for you know, kind of 40, 50 years ago, there was you know, if you were a Democrat, for example, if you, that was your party, you tend to tended to vote Democrat or you voted Republican. That typically didn't necessarily predict every stance you would have on a right. given social or political issue. So within both of those broad descriptions, you would have more conservative or more liberal Democrats or Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you, it wouldn't necessarily define how you think mm -hmm. on any given issue. What's up, everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T Electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement pretty much in your entire body. And let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, <laughs> like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also, it tastes really, really good. Get some uh, chocolate creamer, hazelnut creamer, or even coconut. Uh, mix that all up it tastes really really good so uh yeah make sure you drop by go to drinklmnt.com slash in liberty and health and uh pick you up some electrolytes today all right guys thanks and i think part of the problem with a lot of the social or political or and and, and it, you know people would be like well aren't we supposed to talk about diet but it's like nutrition and diet feeds into all of this it's part of this overall picture um, and, and, and part of the problem now is that people almost have predictable kind of responses yep. based on a certain huge overall general world view that they hold. Um, and that's massively problematic. And this is, this is where I do uh, hold kind of my own, you know, I think that science during, I think there's been kind of evidence of, of science at its best. And then also 
the use of science at its worst. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll explain what I mean by that over the course of the pandemic. We've seen the best of it in the sense that we had really rapid deployment of technology and scientific, you know, resources to mm -hmm. come up with something that was at least going to be useful. I mean, the difference between pre and post vaccine, for example, is just enormous as far as, you know, magnitude of like death toll and everything else. Sure. So, so we were able to produce something in a, in a rapid time frame, but then how we communicated that. And I saw this in the UK as well as in the US, how we communicated that was such a letdown because it was this real, oh, follow the science and we'll browbeat you with that if you raise any questions over mm. efficacy, right. safety or anything. And it's like, that's science isn't used to beat people or, or coerce people into a course of action. It's persuasive, not coercive, or it should be. And I feel like science and science communicators really let themselves down. And we see this across a number of, of, of other issues as well in society where we should be using this. Like, let's let's use data to objectively inform a conversation that we're having, and then we can come to some reasoned conclusions. Um, and like you say, with the myocarditis thing, you know, the, the, the kind of if you, you really get into the data, what we're typically looking for is, is there an increase above the base rate incidence of any, of any condition? Mm -hmm. And there is, but it's, it's modest. Okay. Right. So then you're, you're extrapolating that over the whole population and the stratification by different age groups. And you're saying, okay, there are some individuals who maybe even if they've had the doses, uh, maybe they don't necessarily need to get a booster at this point. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe we would just like write, write that out and assume that between having it, most people have caught it as well at some point. Mm -hmm. And then you get into a more nuanced kind of picture of where this might apply and for what benefit. Or another really good example here was this idea that, and people that were slightly on the kind of more anti side jumped on this and said, they said it would reduce transmission. And it was like, that was never in the data, mm -hmm. right? It was never in the data. What it was about was an overall population coverage approach such that people didn't get as sick or severely sick and the knock-on effect in terms of hospitalizations and deaths so you're breaking this chain of causation between mm -hmm. widespread you know transmission and then people getting much sicker and then this knock-on effect to healthcare systems mm -hmm. and that was communicated so badly that everyone right. was kind of under some sort of impression that once you got this you were never going to catch it or or potentially and it's like that's that's not quite what was so this real opportunity cost was lost and then suddenly people have this sense of we were lied to. Right? And, and so, and, and it all just spirals then again, based on almost someone's predictable stance on how they would line up with it based on their wider worldview. Yeah, it's it's really sad because I have people that follow me on Twitter, like bashing people asking for a source of information. And it's, it's mind boggling to me because I first started kind of looking into stuff from the nutrition side. And I mean, I've been political for, you know, most of my adult life, but like, when I started learning about research, it was when I was kind of in the carnivore diet space. And I, I then, you know, the data had literally changed my mind to convince me to eat it another way. So um, like I said, it was pure data driven that convinced me otherwise. So now when I see people in 
other realms just saying, oh, you know, that science is bought and paid for whatever, you know, people are annoying harassing for a source. I'm like, no, because if if you if you're going to make an outrageous claim, you need outrageous evidence to prove your claim. Like you can't just say wild shit and, and you know, expect to have no pushback on that. And that's really kind of the dialogue that we've entered, which is so sad to me as somebody who when I put out podcasts, I do tons of research to hopefully give people good information. Right. And that's what we should do if we're going to be doing research and trying to give people good information, then, you know, we should be providing the best data possible rather than just saying obscene stuff for clicks and likes. It's, it's very sad. I would, I would love, you know, particularly as it relates to nutrition research, you know, the whole like, Oh, who's paid. I would love someone to spend six months in nutrition research and realize how badly funded we are relative to other fields. (laughs) Uh, you were the idea that someone's being bought off somewhere you know you you can't patent diet right there's no vested interests here you're generally relying on funding from from benevolent sources you know some trust that's in, interested in you know health research overall like so um whatever about the pharmaceutical realm of course there's obscene amounts of money pumped into research in that context but like when it's when people say that I'll, I'll you know every now and then if i say something on social media like seed oils are not bad for our health and it's mm-hmm. like someone's paying you i'm like i, I actually wish i could get more money <laughs> to do to do, do good research you know yeah you know what wait for the check from big canola in the mail yeah yeah yeah, yeah exactly like so someone someone actually give me a, a gladly you know <laughs> take it and do some do some good research with it but yeah, certainly from a nutrition standpoint, it's it's um, yeah, it's it's an underfunded field, and I think this this plays into, you know, I think this plays into a lot of the um, use and abuse of science in conversations about nutrition, particularly when it comes to the kind of major diet tribes. You know, we've got the kind of carnivore extreme, kind of low carb ancestral on one end, and we've got the you know, whole food, plant-based, vegan kind of side on the other end of this spectrum. And and everyone kind of knows that the currency is to talk about science. But the problem is, if they're not coming to it from a place of having any epistemic framework or standards, if they're not coming to it trying to genuinely just say, I'm going to critically appraise a paper on its merits relative to the methodologies that we use in science now, if they're coming at it basically with the only interest of showing what they already believe to be true. I mean, you can find anything, right? You really can find something, whether it's genuinely there in a paper or whether it's like misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. Um, And because everyone now is kind of like an amateur sleuth with this stuff, uh, you, you just get a lot of really bad takes from papers that actually require some degree of scientific literacy to be able to properly understand. Um, and again, I, I think we saw that with COVID where everyone kind of became an armchair epidemiologist overnight or an armchair virologist or whatever. And certainly with nutrition, there's this real sense of um, anyone can turn their hat to it. And this this includes people with purported like expertise in another domain. And I talk about this a lot because people will say, well, you know, a Paul Saladino is a psychologist or even someone less controversial, but more popular, someone like Andrew Huberman. And they'll say, well, he's a neuroscientist. He's at Stanford. I'm like, yes, he is. I'm sure his neuroscience research is amazing, but his nutrition hot takes are awful. 
Mm -hmm. I think, I don't think he knows nutrition research very well. And I think he puts out content that's sensationalist and misleading. And people are like, how dare you? He's a scientist. I'm like, and he's a scientist in a specific domain. I don't hop on my stories on social media and start talking about neuroscience, even though I think it's a pretty cool, interesting area, because I don't know shit about that area. (laughs) And I don't have domain specific expertise to be able to contextualize any research that I would read in the area. Mm -hmm. So this is a big problem with nutrition. There's this kind of sense that ah, it's only nutrition research and like anyone can turn their hat to it. And it's a really complex science. Um, and, you know, we need to, yeah, I'd, I'd like there to be more appreciation for that, but I don't think that's coming anytime soon. Yeah. Well, one thing that I kind of did appreciate about Huberman, even though I don't really listen to him, is that he kind of threw stones at Lane for um, the artificial sweetener stuff. And then when Lane responded back, um, he was at least open to the idea that his mind could be changed or that he interpreted the data wrong yeah. and honest conversation. So um, I actually kind of wanted to pivot over to this and ask you about this. Um, the artificial sweetener debate, um, this was something that I changed my mind on as well. Um, I used to think, oh, they're bad for you. They mess up your gut. And then over time, Lane and some other people had convinced me, oh, well, they're actually not that bad. So now I drink Diet Pop regularly and I don't see any problems. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the misunderstanding, I think, with artificial sweeteners comes from the fact that they're they're additives to the food supply. So anytime you have an additive that's not just naturally occurring in food, it has to undergo testing uh, to be able to be deemed safe for human consumption at certain thresholds. And so with those studies toxicology research, which is going to try and determine, is there any adverse effect of these compounds? What it will also do is try and use increasingly high doses of those compounds to determine what we consider then our reference ranges for these compounds. And those toxicology studies are conducted in rats or mice um, because they'll have relatively similar pathways of, of disease development Um, particularly for things like cancer. And so these studies purposefully pump, (laughs) pump these compounds into tiny little organisms, right? Right. Uh, Deliberately, because they're trying to, they're trying to tease out an effect. And so someone finds a study like that, which was a toxicology study designed to elicit some response and comes running off saying, oh my God, look at look at what artificial sweeteners do. And it's like, no, no, that's not the context in which we consume them, right? So those toxicology studies then inform how we set levels for those intakes in the population. And that goes into then what levels the food industry can or cannot put into these compounds. So if you look at the what they call the no observed adverse effect level, like this lowest dose in toxicology studies at which there's no adverse effect consumed. Even our average daily consumption levels are often like one one hundredth lower than that level. So, so you know the, the the idea that there's some sort of harm at these levels is very difficult to sustain. Um, and we have a lot of human controlled intervention trials showing where you, you know, replace sugar intake with artificially sweetened beverages, then there's, you know, a reduction in body weight and a, an improvement in cardiometabolic risk factors. Uh, we do have a couple of observational studies recently that suggested an increased risk of some cancers and cardiovascular disease. But in observational research, 
a big, a really important point in terms of influencing outcomes is actually how many events have occurred in your, in your study. If you're looking at cardiovascular disease and you have a thousand people and events occur and, and someone had a heart attack, say 400 people, like that's, that's a lot of power. That's a lot of people in your group have had that outcome. And that means whatever exposure you're looking at, you've got a lot of ability to detect any genuine associations. But if you've got that thousand people and something has, and, and an event has only occurred in five people, then your chance for the characteristics of those five people to really bias the results is huge. And, and that's really the problem with those couple of studies that suggested this uh, association is there was just a really small number of people consuming artificial sweeteners and an even smaller number of actual endpoints occurred in that study. Mm-hmm. And when we look at larger studies, and we do have them, that have looked at artificial sweeteners or modeling the replacement of sweeteners with uh, or, or, or of actual sugar-sweetened beverages with non-caloric or artificially sweetened beverages, we see reductions in cardiovascular disease and other endpoints. So the, the cumulative totality of data we have indicates that these are safe for human consumption at the current levels that they're consumed at. Um, and, and that, you know, yeah, a, a sensationalist study can come out saying, oh my God, look at it changed these gut bugs. But it's like, we don't, we're scratching the surface with the relevance of like the microbiome. So <laughs> it's bizarre that someone would hitch their wagon to one speculative, you know, study against a total body of evidence, but that's really commonly what happens with artificial sweeteners. Right. So kind of pivoting there, I had a uh, friend that wanted me to ask you about fiber and gut health. Um, In my impression of the gut stuff, I used to think it was a lot more important when I was under the carnivore, low-carb zealotry. But um, as I kind of get further away from that, it doesn't seem quite as important. So um, I'm curious kind of what you make of that, because it does seem like from what I hear from most people is that limit saturated fat intake and have a good amount of fiber and generally your gut's going to be okay. Pretty much. And so Although the microbiome and, and that area of research is is complex, and a lot of our knowledge is still understanding, um, you know, is 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 developing, and there's a lot of speculation about specific bacterial species. But in the broadest sense, uh, and from the evidence we have now, which includes not just kind of early life stages, so we know that, for example, human breast milk contains really specific types of fibers. And that's one of the reasons why breastfeeding is associated with kind of better um, kind of gut health, for want of a better term, formation in that life stage. But that, that's being recognized now. So, so milk formulas are being are having these fibers added to them. Mm. And then we look at what we know from, again, human feeding studies where you compare levels of fiber um, and you're looking at the responses in terms of populations of bacteria in the gut. And the big population increases typically are species that we associate with benefits. So if you feed people different levels of fiber, you can actually see, you can measure, you know, for example, decreased inflammatory markers in the colon. You can measure uh, the increase in what are known as short-chain fatty acids, and they, they're part of why there's this anti-inflammatory effect, and there's a lot of interest in potentially other mechanisms that may might, they might benefit. 
So overall, the, you know, the data on fiber, and if you look at proper paleolithic diet research that has used stable isotope analysis and these, mm. look, we're, we're, st we're still filling gaps. We'll always be filling gaps. We can't step back 250,000 years mm. and an RCT and our caveman forebears. But, <laughs> but the data that we do have really indicates that their diet was really high in, in fiber. And yes, although they obviously had substantial contributions to daily energy intake coming from animal sourced foods. Uh, you know, they were still consuming estimates of sometimes around 60 grams of fiber plus a day. Wow. So yeah. Um, but I think in the modern context, it's one of the most consistent findings in nutrition research, mm -hmm. both in observational studies and in RCTs that like, more fiber is definitely better than less fiber and some fiber is definitely better than no fiber at all okay yeah that's very interesting because like i said i kind of came from the carnivore space and i did have issues with some certain foods where i'd get this wrenching pain in my gut at one point so <laughs> you know it's very convincing to hear oh well fiber you don't need fiber so you drop it and then i no longer have that pain and mm. you know you make this association okay well fiber must be bad from that but then you know you and everybody else has kind of laid out this research um so you kind of mentioned the paleo our paleolithic ancestors and what their diet kind of looked like and it does kind of make sense when i hear it and once again i'm open to being wrong that hey we lost all the gut that we had to form more brain because we were killing large animals and cooking the meat and that's why mammoths went it just logically speaking to me it makes sense um but then you mentioned the addition of fiber, and this is something that a lot of the carnivore, low-carb people may omit from this kind of talking point. Um, so what what's kind of like true there and what's bullshit? <laughs> so probably the, the best evidence that we have has looked at different modeling scenarios based on assumptions of the contribution of kind of plant and animal matter mm -hmm. um, and sourced foods to the diet. And it's a really fascinating period to study. I mean, I think, you know, the, certainly the carnivore crowd emphasized the hunter aspect, but the definition of these populations was hunter gatherers. <laughs> and <laughs> the gathering, the gathering was a big deal. <laughs> the gathering was, was low cost in terms of energy. It was low risk. You weren't potentially going to die trying to slay the woolly mammoth. Um, so, you know, it, it's by all accounts, there is, in terms of the process of encephalization, which is the kind of growth and development of the human brain, yes, there is this uh, association, but it's not necessarily with the foods per se, it's with fire. It's the, it's that cooking with fire opened the door, not just to be able to cook meats, but to also cook previously inedible plant foods. Mm -hmm. So if you find a bunch of potatoes, you can now make them into edible nutrition sources. So the unifying characteristic is the human development of fire as a, as a method then of being able to cook with that. And in terms of brain development, that's possibly, and this, this evolutionary argument maybe has a bit more weight because if you look at the fat composition of the human brain, it's primarily polyunsaturated fats, particularly EPA and DHA, which are these two fatty acids we find in marine sources. And so when they map the human genome kind of evolution out of the, the Rift Valley and, 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 and across what's kind of modern East Africa, 
the theory here is that we evolved by kind of staying tightly clo in close proximity to waterways. So we constantly had a source of, and because this is the only real kind of way that we could plausibly also match the fact that other species have the capacity to convert uh, other omega-3s into these. And we lost the enzyme in somewhere in evolution uh, that really does that. So we don't convert plant-based omega-3s into these omega-3s with any great efficiency. So at some point we were consuming a direct source of these nutrients. And so the theory is, so there's this very romanticized image of, you know, cavemen slaying the woolly mammoth, right? But it's like, also, if you look at the actual research from paleolithic researchers, the one observation they would make is that if you go to these areas in Africa, um, typically the game meat there is lean meats. It's not fatty cuts of meats. Uh, and that's because these are usually large herd animals that are exposed on wide plains to predators. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they have to be lean. And if they're going to, you know, run away from a lion or something like that. So there's, there's probably multiple strands here. We, we, we clearly started consuming a direct source of DHA and that implies uh, early consumption of fish as a direct source. Fish, again, was probably very low cost in terms of energy expenditure to catch, right. also low risk in terms of catching it. Um, and yes, there's no doubt that we were also hunting, you know, larger kind of uh, land animals for uh, consumption of either organ meats and or um, muscle meat, uh, in addition to cooking plant matter and, and, and using readily edible plant matter as well. So there's it was a nice analysis that did five different modeling scenarios. One was a diet where it was primarily, uh, the, where the animal sources were primarily muscle meat. One was a combination of muscle and organ meat. One was where it was predominantly organ meat. And then another was where it was predominantly fish. And then the final one was where it was a mix of fish and meat. Uh, and then they were also factoring in available plant matter and using these estimates. Um, and basically what was quite interesting about it was there were still relatively consistent, broad characteristics of this dietary pattern. It was relatively low in saturated fat, which is in contradiction to a lot of the modern kind of interpretations right. of this because the composition of the meats were largely lean. Uh, it was also, you know, relatively high in fiber. It was relatively uh, kind of rich in, you know, polyunsaturated fats, omega-3 particularly. Yes, the omega-6 content was kind of lower than what you might find. But what's interesting is a lot of the anti-omega-6 rhetoric comes from people who advocate for more meat-based diets. Mm -hmm. But in this modeling, the greater the meat intake, the higher the omega-6 intake was mm -hmm. as well. So we can piece together some stuff from our evolutionary past using some methods. There'll always be gaps in our estimates and in our models. Um, but I think overall, while yes, there was, you know, in, and in terms of contribution, plant versus animal, like these range, you know, it, it could have been as far as contributions to total energy intake could have been kind of 60 plant, 40 animal, or, or something more balanced, depending wow. on the diet, something in the more 50-50 range. But certainly it's not tipped to anything like 100% animal source foods. That's literally not present in any data we have uh, that estimates the kind of evolutionary human diet, which is so bizarre that these are people who then advocate for, 
you know, high saturated fat or high sodium intake. Like this is the, this is the interesting thing about those diets is like, they seem to have been less than two grams of salt a day. <laughs> oh, wow. And, yeah. And yet, and yet you'll get this big kind of, you know, oh, we need to consume more salt because that's what our ancestors did. It's like, no, it's not. Our ancestors barely consumed much salt, which is why we have such exquisitely tight preservation mechanisms for sodium, which is in the modern context, you have too much salt and your blood pressure goes through the roof. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. So this is something that, um, I'm once again, I'm open to, to, or, um, to change my mind on this, but, um, you know, I listened to Rob Wolf a decent bit and he's a big advocate of sodium for low carb diets. I mean, you could see the element box behind me, but, um, from what I've heard is that they've fed rats, you know, ridiculous amounts, kind of the same deal with the artificial sweeteners, ridiculous amounts of sodium and their blood pressure went up. So they kind of came to that conclusion through that, that it must be bad to humans. Um, is that incorrect? Like I said, I've just, th this was told to me by trusted people and, you know, I just kind of took it, ran with it. There, there are some in the ketogenic space, for example, like following a ketogenic diet, if it is a truly ketogenic diet can kind of alter body mineral stores. Mm -hmm. And there is some, albeit largely more anecdotal kind of evidence. I, th I think there is some published work on this that suggests that electrolyte balance is, is really something people need to pay attention to mm -hmm. on a ketogenic diet. Um, but the evidence for sodium, we don't even need to go near animal models in terms of making inferences because we, it's one of the most researched nutrients that we have. We have okay. data upon data from humans um, we have multiple ways that we can think about this. One is we can look at modern, what are known as like unacculturated populations. So populations basically still living subsistence or, or, or traditional kind of hunter gatherer lifestyles. There's a number of populations in the Amazon that have been looked at. Their salt intake is practically zero. There's populations, the Kenyan Luau in Africa. Uh, there's populations in New Guinea that were looked at as well uniformly those populations have about less than three to four grams of salt a day. Um, and then we look at observational research and, and the link with say hypertension. And we know that even independent of nutrition, hypertension is one of the leading causal risk factors for like stroke, cardiovascular disease. And you look at human feeding trials and you will typically see there is some evidence and, and people will point to this when I've had this conversation of, well, here's a trial that was like a, a feeding study and they fed people these different levels of sodium and they didn't really, in otherwise healthy people, mm -hmm. and they didn't really see any change. And it's like, that's because the system is really adaptive. And a lot of those studies are what we would call an acute study, right? So they're a, they're a single day study where they're taking otherwise healthy people and they're basically seeing what they're really showing evidence of is some resilience in the system in the short term. The problem is chronic intake of those levels, those mechanisms become overwhelmed essentially and, and, and then blood pressure goes up. And when we look at longer term outcome trials of like lower sodium compared to higher, you know, there's pretty consistently reductions in cardiovascular endpoints and disease endpoints. And then in the observational research that we have, like the risk is linear across increasing levels of sodium. Hmm. Um, and that, that starts from about, you know, 2,400 milligrams 
or 500 milligrams or about five grams of salt a day. So again, it's consistent with what we see in these kind of modern hunter-gatherer populations. Uh, it's consistent with what we see in epidemiology. And then the intervention trials we have that actually look at hard endpoints, like people actually having stroke or, 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 or a heart attack, pretty much consistently show that if you reduce sodium from higher levels, you have a lower risk than someone that just keeps consuming high sodium levels. So, and, and that's, that's not factoring out uh, because there are, you know, specific considerations in a sports nutrition context, that that's not my area of expertise. So like, I don't, I, I know from speaking to people that, yeah, like if you're working with athletes, uh, particularly in hot climates or they're just sweaters, then there are considerations for electrolyte balance that you want to consider in their hydration strategies. But they're unique. That's not gen pop type nutrition advice. You know, that's not the kind of advice we want most people in the population following. I am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor. I am now working with MTS Nutrition, which is a brand that I've believed in for a very long time. And they run awesome cells and they have awesome products. So um, I want to tell you about their amazing protein powder, which you're going to ask me how many pounds I have of the protein powder. And the answer is all of them. So here I got red velvet cake, 25 grams of protein and they have the amino acids and everything on there 59 servings peanut butter fluff uh fluffer nutter 26 grams of protein and then also the chocolate chip cookie which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there so 27 grams of protein 180 as i've talked about on the show getting your protein is very very important so make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through mts nutrition boom okay yeah that that makes sense to me um like I said, it's just something that was always kind of told to me coming from the space that I kind of came from. So I wanted to also talk to you about um, sugar versus saturated fat. And I want to give you my thoughts and you could tell me where I'm incorrect and maybe where I'm right. So it seems like to me, sugar is bad because it doesn't give you any nutrients or satiation, but adds a lot of calories mm -hmm. to me. And once again, you can elaborate on this more the saturated fat seems to be about the same, although there is a correlation with um, saturated fat increasing LDL, which may contribute to heart disease. Um, did I get that right? What did I get wrong? And elaborate. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So with, with sugar, with added sugars, not sugar that you might naturally find in say milk or yogurt, which would have lactose, which is like a milk sugar. And that's a good, you know, a good, a good aspect to the diet um, overall, because the food it's traveling in is is nutritious. Mm -hmm. um, we're typically talking about added sugars. So like the sugar that's in a can of Coke. Um, and, you know, th this was a long standing kind of focus in nutrition. And it goes back, the research between both saturated fat and sugar really does go back to the kind of 50s and early 60s. Um, and again, people love to kind of add that into the narrative that's very kind of anti-guidelines. It's like, okay. well, they lied about the saturated fat data and they totally just like uh, blanked the sugar data because they wanted to demonize fat and the sugar industry paid them and blah, 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 blah. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's 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 a grain of, of of truth in that somewhere. And it's not necessarily to do with the sugar industry. It's simply to do with the fact that at that time, sugar intake, added sugar intake in human diets in the 50s and 60s was not where it is now. Mm -hmm. Whereas saturated fat, people were particularly in the US or some countries in Europe consuming nearly 20% of their daily energy from saturated fat. 
So it wasn't that there was any lying about the data on sugar. It's just that at that time in those populations, sugar, it was hard to find a signal in the noise in the data, whereas it was much stronger for saturated fat. And then so what, what, what's, what that's allowed people to do in a modern context where sugar has increased and saturated fat has come down is to kind of have this retrospective bias and kind of retrospectively validate the kind of narrative that they have now. Right. But, but what we know now from, again, kind of all lines of research, certainly the epidemic, but particularly controlled feeding studies is sugar, the primary issue with sugar is that it easily contributes to calorie excess, to energy excess. And when it does contribute to energy excess, what we end up with is the kind of adverse effects of energy surplus. So, you know, increasing body fat, uh, increasing risk factors for either diabetes, you know, glucose intolerance, insulin, um, and, and adverse effects on blood cholesterol levels as well, which sugar has at high levels. So that, that research is there, but what's really interesting is if you feed people high levels of sugar without excess energy, then those negative effects of sugar really fall away. We don't see that adverse effect of sugar. Conversely, if you feed people high levels of saturated fat, again, without any excess energy, then you still see adverse effects, mm -hmm. particularly on the liver. And so that's something that 50 years ago, we weren't really able to measure with any kind of degree of robustness, but with recent trials that are able to compare fat and, and you know have participants not consume more energy than they need then you see that high levels of saturated fat will increase the level of fat in the liver and then that has these consequences for insulin resistance and otherwise so in in a con in the context of a diet that is in excess of energy right someone's over consuming total energy then both saturated fat and sugar can together be problematic or in isolation, both could be problematic at high levels. But once we take energy balance into the equation, then really we don't see these negative effects of sugar as much, but we can still see some deleterious effects of, of high saturated fat intake. And by high, we're typically looking at like, you know, kind of 15 to 20% of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, most people in the population for saturated fat now are consuming kind of 12% on average in the US and UK. So it may not necessarily be the nutrient of, of most concern uh, for most people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's um, kind of where, what I've heard you lay out before. And it's very, very interesting. And it, it's, I personally still enjoy a lot of red meat, but it's something that I kind of battle with personally. So another thing that you've um, talked about a lot is the seed oil craze. And initially my bias was against this, but over time, it seems to be that it's relatively benign. So um, I guess kind of lay out the history with seed oils and why this became such a thing. I know Nina Teichels was one of the people who kind of drove the nail into this coffin, but um, if you have any more info, you know, please let loose. <laughs> I, I th again, I think it feeds in with this overall idyllic narrative that people have about our ancestral past and anything that is, you know, quote, processed is obviously bad because it's not natural. And it's a very naturalistic fallacy. I mean, plenty of things are not natural and they're good for us and plenty of things are natural and they're not good for us. So mm -hmm. it really, you know, it's, 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 it is a fallacy for a reason to think in that way. Um, with seed oils, 
again, it's, it's people focus on like their processing method and like, oh my God, look, this is what has to be done to the, the source of these, you know, uh, seeds in order to produce an oil. And it's like, yeah, but what about the end product? <laughs> like, it's like, I don't really care what the, yeah, the, the processing method is not what makes it a healthy product or not, you know, it's the end product. And even just stepping back from the hyperbole, I always, I always ask someone to like, just look at the nutrition label of say like a canola oil and like, tell me at some level what, what is wrong with this uh, or what could be wrong if this is its nutritional content. And, you know, typically they're high in monounsaturated fats. A lot of the time they're high in the same fatty acid that is high in olive oil and no one seems to have a problem with olive oil and olive oil is also processed from olives into the oil. So it's, it's a very selective emphasis on seed oils um, and, and kind of emits, you know, longstanding oils that are processed like extra virgin olive oil. But if you really were to take that nutrition label, like I said, show it to someone and say, look, point out to me what's wrong with this. What they'll typically zero in on is linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid. And it's an essential fatty acid Now we do need it in the diet. Um, we need probably a minimum of about one to 2% in order for normal physiological function. And the argument in that community is that it's the addition and increase of this particular uh, linoleic acid, omega-6 in the diet, primarily contributed through seed oils that explains everything to them it explains literally ev everything i saw cell cellulite was one of them every it's it's so <laughs> insane and, and a lot of it is like i get that it's attractive to distill complexity into the most simplistic explanation mm -hmm. and because people don't like complexity but it's it's such it's such a hilarious narrative because it's so divorced from the evidence that we have so there, there's multiple levels that we can think of this. Like we have feeding studies that go back to the 1950s where you tightly control for everything. You increase one fat over another. Uh, and we know that, that these fats are from a blood cholesterol and cardiovascular risk perspective. Uh, they, have, they have the best, they have the biggest effect on lowering LDL cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, that's the intermediate risk factor. We can look at clinical trials that have, looked at hard endpoints with people actually having a cardiovascular disease event. And you can see that for each 5% of saturated fat, you replace with polyunsaturated fats. And these trials largely used seed oils and high omega-6 containing oils. Uh, then for each 5% you replace, you've got a 10% lower risk of, of cardiovascular disease. Mm. Um, we can, you, we can measure levels of fatty acids in the body. We can take and a fat tissue and adipose tissue biopsy and measure the levels of fatty acids in someone's adipose tissue. We can do it with their red blood cells. We can do it with plasma and serum, different compartments. And any studies, we have huge amounts of data now from different population studies that have taken tissue samples from people at a point in time. And every compartment that you measure linoleic acid in is associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease. So it's like, if, if this is so problematic, then when we actually measure it in the body, 
we should be seeing some of these adverse health outcomes. Right. And we it's not that we don't see it. It's that we see the direct opposite of that. Mm-hmm. It's not just that it's neutral. It's that it's lower risk. And that's whether you measure ad- like adipose tissue linoleic acid, red blood cell tissue, uh, you know, linoleic acid. So it becomes really difficult to see. And then we, they'll say, you know, well, if not, it's okay. Some people will say, I accept that it lowers cholesterol levels, but it actually increases inflammation. In humans, we have zero evidence for that. Pretty much zero. Like, yeah, you can, again, you can take a rat, you can pump it full of, of, of high doses of linoleic acid and see an increase in inflammatory markers. But that's why we don't always over-rely on rodent data if we've got human outcome data. Um, and we can feed people up to 18% of their diet from omega-6 and not see really any change in inflammatory markers. Um, and this is because what's touted as the inflammatory mediator is known as arachidonic acid. And the assumption is that if we have linoleic acid, it converts to arachidonic acid and that has inflammatory effects. But you can you can feed people, you can increase by 500% their linoleic acid intake and it won't change arachidonic acid levels. So, so arachidonic acid in the body is quite stable and linoleic acid in the diet doesn't change it. So it's like, what angle are they coming from here to find these associations? Like any line of evidence we can think of points to the fact that overall omega-6 is also a pretty good fat to have in the diet as well as omega-3. Um, and so, and, and the one caveat I'll say here is that that doesn't mean that all oils are created equal, mm-hmm. but we, we judge it then on its nutritional content. So if you were giving me the choice between a sunflower oil and a canola oil, I'm going to go with canola oil, not because... Um, no, they're both seed oils just because I actually think it's nutritional profile. It's got higher omega-3 levels. It's got lower saturated fat levels. It's got higher monounsaturated fat levels. So I'm making a choice there, not based on any sort of fear of a seed oil, but simply because nutritionally, that's a better product to me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult. I, I, I wonder at times, like, has anyone that's arguing against these actually read the evidence? <laughs> I would, I would say probably not. Um, now, would you say this? Is another thing that I've heard a lot of people talk about is the omega six to omega three ratio, and it seems like you kind of touched on it earlier. Um, if you have too high of omega six in your diet, then that's going to be inflammatory. And I, I used to kind of think along these lines, but then um, as I got further and further removed, I realized, oh, well, when people say inflammation, that's just whatever they want to say to demonize something rather than saying like, okay, is this a localized response? Is this a systemic response? What, what's the response? What are we talking about? Yeah. So, so actually, if you really look at what the omega-6-3 ratio and some of the adverse associations that that using that ratio uh, generated in terms of research, if you really look at what that was actually saying in those studies, it was low omega-3. So there was this idea that, well, it's omega-3 is low and omega-6 is high. We need to bring one down and bring the other up. Actually, omega-6 levels are not that high in the general population. In the US, it's around 7% of intake. Mm-hmm. Okay, of, of daily energy is from linoleic acid, is from omega-6. Um, funnily enough, that's not too far off these evolutionary estimates that we have, are mm-hmm. kind of around 5%. But the point is that people are not consuming 
you know, on average, ludicrously high levels of omega-6. So what the ratio is really indicating, because we do know this from our population research, and this is the same in, in a lot of European countries as it is in the US, certainly the UK, is that people really don't consume any omega-3s, mm -hmm. right? They don't consume a lot of alpha-linolenic acid, which is the omega-3 precursor from plants, foods like flaxseed or otherwise, walnuts, and they don't consume any EPA or DHA because no one's eating really oily fish. Mm -hmm. So actually, it's not necessarily that you need to deliberately bring omega-6 down. It's that people really need to just increase omega-3. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's really what the omega-3-6 ratio is more likely representing. It's just a proxy for low omega-3 status. And really, people should kind of try and think about eating more, you know, walnuts and salmon, basically. <laughs> Nice, nice. All right. Well, um, I know you had about an hour time limit, so um, I want to get one last question in with you, if that's good with you. Of course, yeah. Cool. What would be some recommendations that you think everybody could take to improve their health, just from a base level? Let's say someone eating the standard American diet, what um, recommendations would you pose to them? So if someone was, if that was their baseline and they were eating the kind of standard American or standard Western diet, I, I think the lowest hanging fruit would be to actually aim for that like five a day fruits and vegetables, um, non-starchy vegetables, you know, dark green leafy veg and kind of really dark pigment fruit, like blueberries, raspberries, these kind of fruits. Um, and like that, that more than anything would be the, the lowest hanging fruit to pick with diet before any other kind of changes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think then, you know, if they made that step, then, you know, you could start to maybe think about like some other, you know, kind of more nuanced additions, like again, thinking about the, the composition of fat in their diet and where that could kind of change to like, you know, you don't have to, there's no way to get rid of saturated fat, nor should someone. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for example, it could involve like leaner cuts of meat, consuming more oily fish, um, increasing plant sources of unsaturated fats like extra virgin olive oil and nuts. Uh, so those kind of like steps come on from that afterwards. But that would be like literally point one would be just bump up veg and fruit intake. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, that's uh, that's definitely different than what I typically hear from people. Um, would you say increasing protein is a uh, good or a bad idea? I think it depends um, okay. on someone's. I think it depends on someone's exercise activity levels. I think if someone's relatively sedentary and their their goal number one is just to start improving their health, I wouldn't necessarily have them worried too much about protein initially. Mm -hmm. um, but if someone is also going to be increasing their exercise and resistance training, then yeah, it would definitely be something that if it was lower, they would want to think about choosing kind of leaner protein sources and increasing their total daily protein intake. Nice. All right. Well, um, like I said, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, this was very, very informative, and I can't wait to share this with everybody. Oh, no, I'm going to have to listen over once or twice. Um, where can everybody find you, Alan? Uh, so three main outlets, uh, social media. I only operate on Instagram at the nutritional underscore advocate. Uh, my research review website is Alinea Nutrition, and then also the Sigma Nutrition podcast with Danny Lennon. Nice. Well, uh, everybody listening, make sure you go check that out because um, it's, it's packed full of information. Every single um, episode that you've been on on somebody else's podcast, I always learn a whole ton. So I can't recommend people go check out your stuff enough. And um, Alan, if you don't got anything else, we'll close her out. No, that's great. Thanks, Kyle. Really appreciate it. All right, everybody. Take care.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.